You may be seated. Our scripture for today is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 38. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice about him which read, This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're in a season now that the church calls Lent. And Lent is the 40 days between Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, and Easter Sunday. And it's a time when we get our hearts ready to approach Jesus at the cross and definitely to meet Jesus on Easter Sunday. And many of us will fast from something. Um, I always encourage people to fast from something that blocks their relationship with God, Um, an attitude or a habit or um, just some way that you're spending your time that creates a blockage. And so if you could fast from being afraid or worrying or condemning other people. Um, Those would be fasts that would clear away that path and get your heart ready to receive God. Um, The other thing we do during Lent is we not only fast from something, but we pick up practices that will draw us near to God. So one of the things I'd like to encourage you to do that I spoke about on Ash Wednesday is to pick up the, the habit of prayer and to pray every day during Lent so that you could be saying, yes, God, I want to draw close to you, or to do it a little bit more. Maybe if you pray in the morning, to add a time at night too. So the whole point of this is that we would walk with our Lord towards the cross. The cross. Now, what I found as a pastor, and certainly what I find in my own heart, is that every Lent, I lead you on a journey, and when I was a kid, the pastors would lead us on a journey, and we'd move with Jesus towards the cross. We would study um, what Jesus did as he got there, or we'd study disciplines that would help us be more like Jesus. Or um, one year with y'all, I told you about each of the last days in his last week and what he did on those days. Then we come to Palm Sunday, and we have this big community celebration, and we invite our friends, and we welcome Jesus as King. Then there's Holy Week, and then we're at Easter. And if you miss Good Friday, then what happens is, and I feel, I feel this is a lack every year, we follow Jesus right to this moment, then it's Palm Sunday, yay, and then we jump right to Easter, and we're back to Yay. And unless you come to that Good Friday service, which, you know, it's the middle of the week and it's not Sunday, and so, you know, we don't usually have the, we never have the amount of people that we have on Sunday, then we miss the cross. And I wondered um, if I was not doing you a disservice as your pastor to always lead you towards it, but to never invite you to sit on that, the darkest day, at the foot of the cross. And what I could do about that. And so I felt way back in the fall, okay, well, this year for Lent, I'd like to talk about the cross and the things that Jesus says from it. Specifically what he says, seven things that he says while he's dying. 
what I'd encourage us to do is admit that this is the space that we least like to see our Lord. Of course. This is, to me, this is the worst place I could ever find my Savior, is dying like this. And yet, I feel like if we go with him to the garden, go with him to the Last Supper, and then run away from the cross, we are just like those early disciples who fled. And so I want us this year to sit with him on Friday, to wait even when it's uncomfortable, to watch even though it breaks our hearts, and to listen. Because when we listen, we will hear not only what this cost our Lord, but we're going to see the light breaking through on that dark day. Listen for Jesus' words, and the light will break into the darkness. And that's worth being there for. So this is what happened leading up to the cross. Jesus was arrested. And what I would want y'all to remember and to notice that I had never noticed before is how silent he is throughout his trial, throughout that whole day where they're, you know, they're mocking him and beating him, how silent he is. It begins with the garden, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, This is the place where Jesus was praying. It's still there in Jerusalem to this day. So Jesus is there at night. One of his disciples has betrayed him. And the terrible part about this is the the religious leaders have been looking for a time and a place where they could arrest him without causing a riot. Because that's the last thing they want to happen is have all the people see it, come to Jesus' side, and lead like this insurrection against you know, them and against Rome. They don't want that to happen. They have to have it in secret. So Judas knows... If you want to arrest Jesus, he prays, and he's almost completely alone, and it's at night, and no one will know. So Judas leads this mob armed to the teeth to go arrest the Savior of the world who's praying peacefully in a garden. And the only thing that Jesus says is he talks to his own disciples and says, put your swords away. We're not going to fight this. And he's taken away. He would have been taken to the home of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. We've also been there. The ruins still stand. And it's hard for me. You'd have to ask some other people who went on this trip. It's hard for me to tell you how powerful it was that they have these cells in Caiaphas' home. They're just holes in the ground, chiseled out of the rock. And the only opening they have is this hole in the top. They put stairs down so that you can get into one of them, but they say, this is, if Jesus was arrested, they probably dropped him into this very hole. And he had to wait in the darkness here for the trial to begin. And when they would have come for him, they would have dropped a rope through there and put it under his arms and pulled him out through the top of the hole. There were no stairs then. And I still remember we went down into that hole and we sang and I was just thinking, Jesus was here. I wonder what he was praying, what he was saying to God in that moment. They pulled him out for a trial, which was a shadow of a trial. There was only ever going to be one verdict and that was guilty. They had him. They were going to convict him on something. 
And so they bring forth all of these witnesses that lie. And Jesus stands there as they lie about him and says nothing. Doesn't speak a word to contradict it. Infuriates them with his silence. And finally, when he does speak, the first thing he says, they jump on it. They say, guilty. They send him to Pilate. We have found this man guilty. Execute him. Pilate isn't so sure. He asks Jesus all these questions. He says, do you realize your life is at stake here? And every single time, Jesus won't answer. Silent. Finally, Pilate says, you are the king of the Jews. And then that's when Jesus says, you have said it. Four words. Pilate can't do anything more. He sends him to Herod. Herod gets less than four words. He gets nothing. And he keeps saying, you could save yourself if you just speak. This doesn't seem right. Do do a miracle. Do a sign. Silent. They take him before the crowds. Pilate's still trying to figure out a way to release him. The crowds are now screaming. The ones that said Hosanna are now screaming, crucify him. They're screaming the name of a a murderer and an insurrectionist, Barabbas. And Jesus is silent. Sent to be flogged. Afterwards, the soldiers, the barracks empty, we read in the Bible, and all the soldiers came out to mock him, to belittle him. His shoulders would have been torn apart, his back torn apart by the whip. They put a royal robe over him. They make a crown of thorns because they couldn't steal a crown. And they put a scepter in his hand and they bow. Oh, mighty king of the Jews. They're mocking not only him, but God and Israel, everything, and he's silent. There are accounts that say they blindfold him and people hit them, hit him with their fists. If you are a prophet, they say, tell us who hit you. They hit him with a staff over his head. He's so weak. He's lost so much blood. And he says nothing. And then they crucify him. And y'all, in studying for this sermon, I'm going to tell you I know a lot more about crucifixion than I wish I knew. But I need y'all to know some of this, um, that the Romans were brutal, and they knew how to hurt you and how to make sure that other people knew you were being hurt to keep the populations they had conquered in line. And so most scholars agree that when you were crucified, they... They drove nails through your ankles into the sides of the cross to hold you there and then through the wrist because those bones could support the weight of a body at least for a while. In the ancient Near East, um, the idea of a hand went to about here. So when we hear they went through his hands, the wrist was part of that. They would have crucified him and the crucified died slow terrible deaths. It was a combination of exhaustion and shock and fluid building up around your major organs and slow, slow suffocation. 
because it hurts so bad. You, you weren't lashed up there and supported. Your chest cavity was hanging. And so to get a breath, you'd have to push against the nails that have been driven through your ankle bones and then collapse again. And so it was almost unheard of that people being crucified would speak. They didn't speak once they were crucified. And yet, that's when Jesus, who has been so silent, starts to speak. When it cost him the very most physically. When he would have had to push up against the nails through his ankles with a back that was raw from being flogged on that rough cross to get a full breath, not just to breathe, but to say things that people thought to write down and remember so we'd have them. And the first thing that he does is pray. He prays a prayer. Well, he prays a prayer that he could have just said in his heart, but that he went through agony to say out loud so that we would know it. The Savior prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says it out loud so they could hear. And I imagine that those words when they came out were just a rough, rasping voice, maybe barely above a whisper, and yet it's like a blessing that has echoed through the ages. Forgive them for this. Think of who he was praying for, this Savior who taught us to forgive. Think of who he was asking God to have mercy on. The Roman soldiers, the ones who had dressed him up in mockery, the ones who beat him and flogged him and stripped him naked, who offered him sour wine and said, if you're the king, save yourself. For them he prayed, Father, forgive them. Think the Pharisees were there? Of course they were there. We have their words that they're still taunting him. You saved others. If you're the king, we'll believe it if you can save yourself. Can you imagine Jesus struggling to find the breath so that he can say, Father, forgive them. And then the crowd all those fickle-hearted people shouting Hosanna what, four days ago. And then that day had been shouting crucify him and are spitting on him and mocking him. Some Messiah you turned out to be. Jesus pulls himself up so that he can say, Father, forgive them. If I have to sit at the foot of the cross, then I'd like to hear these words. Makes it worth it. Because those words weren't just for one generation. Those words are for all of us. All of us on our darkest days. All of those horrible sins that we are ashamed to even admit to ourselves 
that we drag around behind us and nobody can see them, but we're, we know they're there and we think, I can never be forgiven for this. These words are for us. These words are for you and me. This is an invitation for us to go on the darkest day in history and listen to our Savior saying, forgive them, Father. Isn't that the reason they're saying save yourself? Right? They're saying save yourself, Jesus. He could have done it. Of course he could have gotten down off the cross. Could have called down fire from heaven. Could have had angels come tend his wounds. He didn't. He stayed there to buy our forgiveness. He's praying the first words that he say from the cro- says from the cross are the reason he's there. Father, forgive them. That I may save not myself, but them. That they could come home. So friends, let's go to the foot of the cross. Let's sit there and try to withstand the horror of it so that we can look up to Jesus and say, please, will you forgive me? Let's pray. Lord, you know that we would like to see you transfigured on a mountain, wrapping your arms around children, calling the lost home, and how it breaks our heart to see you carrying the sins of the world. We, our sins are so dark. And yet on that cross, we also see your unending love for us. That you stayed there so that we could be forgiven and we could be saved. And so please help us to claim that, to take the gift you are offering, bought at such a great cost, to find ourselves free of our sins and our failures because of what you have done. We are so grateful, so grateful. Amen.